Hi, welcome to New Hope Community Church Online. The sermon you are about to hear was originally given by Pastor Chuck Wilson. New Hope Community Church, to know, to live, and to share Jesus Christ. Title for today is Jesus Shocks the Religious Establishment. Matthew 5, 18 to 20. Last week, if you missed it, get the podcast CD so you can kind of follow along. We watched the video, Why I Hate Religion But Love Jesus. Yeah, it was great. We're actually going to show it again today at the end. Uh, but he talked, I, we talked about how if Jesus were making a video today to, for the internet, that he would title it, Why I Hate Religion But Love God and His Law. His Father God and His Law. And we saw how Jesus didn't come to get rid of the law, but to fulfill the law and to bring out its true meaning. We talked about that last week. And also how he fulfilled the law through his perfect perfect sacrifice on the cross. His death on the cross was the perfect sacrifice of the lamb, how he fulfilled that. And how he was the end of the law, the goal of the law, the completion of the law. And through also through his resurrection power and the Holy Spirit in our life, he helps us to live out the law of holiness in our life which further fulfills God's law, the purpose of his law. And now he follows it up here, and after that, he follows it up with a shocking statement to the religious establishment, totally shocked them, and also pretty shocking to the people of that day, and I think to us when we really look at it. Let me pray first. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your law. And how it frees us to live the life you want us to live, how it frees us to live in the freedom of the Holy Spirit, how it guides everything in our life. We pray that your Spirit would speak to us today, each one of us, freeing us up to live according to your word in the joy and the peace that you want us to have by living that way. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's, let's look at Matthew 5, and we'll read 17 through 20, where it says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. All right, so we start with verse 17. Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Remember last week we talked about Romans chapter 10, verse 4, where he says, I've got to see the first one. Uh, Romans 10, 4. I just need the first word. <laughs> You're not helping me, Josh. Uh, all right, I need the first word. That, Romans 10, 4, where he says, um, thank you. Christ is the end of the law. So that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Christ is the end. The end, the completion, the goal. The word means the goal, the completion. That's what he came to do. Jesus came to fulfill the goal of the law. He paid its penalty for our breaking of the law when he died on the cross. 
And then if we put our faith in Jesus Christ and give our life to him, he fulfills the law in our life by giving us the power to live a holy life. The life that God intends for us to live. That's, the, that's how he c- completed the law. And then in verse 18, once again, if you missed that, grab it because it was a just powerful path, powerful verse, just that verse alone. But then in verse 18, he says, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Now, we talked last week, once again, how Jesus said, the, uh, he talked, how Jesus said the law and the prophets, when he says the law and the prophets, he's talking about the whole Old Testament, not just the law, the Pentateuch, not just the prophets, the major and minor, major and minor prophets, but also when he uses that terminology, he's including the book of wisdom, the historical books, the books of poetry, Psalms, Proverbs, all these different books are all included. But today we also have the New Testament added to the Old Testament. So when he makes this statement, he, this refers not just to the Old Testament, but the New Testament, the same principles apply as well, and he makes a very strong statement on the authority and the eternality of God's word. The authority and eternality of God's word. In fact, in Luke 16, 17, parallel passage, he says there, I'm going to have to turn to this one because I don't have it memorized. Luke 16, 17, where he says, and I believe it's behind me now. I don't have it memorized, so I have to read it. All right. Uh, And I should have get new glasses. He says, It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Saying the least stroke, when he, when he says the, the smallest letter, he's saying in Greek that's iota. You know the saying we have, uh, it doesn't make an iota of difference. Somebody says that, they're saying it doesn't make the smallest bit of difference whether this happens or whether I do this. It doesn't matter what I do. But Jesus says... It does make a difference. Not the, small, not the smallest letter can be removed from God's law, from the, the word. And he says also the least stroke of the pen. Even, you, even the crossing of a T or the dotting of an I in God's word cannot pass away. It's authoritative and it's eternal. And he's talking about the divine inspiration of God's word. The divine inspiration of the entire Bible, Old and New Testament, and the result of divine inspiration, God inspires, God breathes the word of God. The the result of that is also follows is inerrancy. Inerrancy means there's no mistakes in God's word. There's nothing you can't find you cannot find a mistake in God's word. Whatever God wrote here is is inerrant. In fact the um, our doctrinal statement. I grabbed this out. Our doctrinal statement. Our very first doctrinal, very first part of our doctrinal statement. Our statement of faith. The statement of faith says the Word of God. We believe the Scriptures of the Old and New Testament are the inspired are the inspired Word of God, inerrant in the original writings. We believe that the Holy Spirit is miraculously preserved his word, so that our Bible is the authoritative word of God, 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. We believe the Bible is complete as the revelation of God's will for salvation and the supreme final authority in all matters pertaining to, pertaining to life and godliness, 2 Peter 1, 3. We believe in the literal, historical, grammatical, and interpretation of God's word. Now, does that mean that every single thing, every single thing in the Bible is 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 to be taken literally? No, Jesus is. It's obvious. Just like when you read any 
anything, you can tell when it's hyperbole or when it's an illustration or a parable. It's obvious when Jesus, often he said it's a parable, but you can tell when it's a parable. But, but most of the time it's to be taken literally. Unless it's clearly not supposed to, it's supposed to be taken literally at, at that point. But that's, that's 2 Timothy 3.16 says, and this is a great one to memorize, all scripture is God-breathed. God-breathed. It's useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture is God-breathed. The whole thing. And what sets Bible-believing churches apart? There's Bible-believing churches, and then there's churches that have, use the Bible, but they kind of use it as a good book. They call it the good book. We call it God's Word. That what sets us apart, and all the Bible churches apart from all the other Christian churches, spelled with a K, by the way, uh, that, is that we believe what Jesus Christ said. That the Bible is actually the Word of God. It's the foundation of our faith. In every denomination, every church, every college, every individual that loses that, church, loses that truth, loses it. You can study church history and college history and individuals' lives. Whenever they lose that truth, that it's God's divine and errant word, when they lose that, it's a slippery slope, and in time, they degenerate into apostasy. You could, we've seen it many, many times. There's amazing colleges out there that you would not even believe at one time were Christian. Hard to believe it. I'm not going to pick on any, but hard to believe it. Uh, Then verse 19, look what he says. He follows it up and says, Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Notice it says we can't break God's commands, the commandments, all right? Now, last week we saw that Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial law. He fulfilled that by his death, by his resurrection. So we don't have to practice the rituals in God's law anymore. It's very clear from Romans and very clear from Hebrews that we don't have to follow the ceremonial law anymore. That's been fulfilled by Jesus Christ. The lamb was sacrificed once for all. But God's moral law is eternal, the law that's moral law, that's not ceremonial, the moral law, God's law is eternal. Ten commandments, and when he says commandments, jump right to the ten commandments. And many other commandments in the law have been reinforced throughout the entire New Testament. We know they're still enforced today. And their goal is eternal because it's holiness. Their goal is our holiness. That we don't, and, and so we cannot break them, and we can't teach others to break them. And, and the sad part about in our country today... We don't stress God's law anymore. We stress grace. It's all grace, grace, grace. Now, I love grace. You know, I talk about grace every week. But we can't ever talk about grace without talking about the law. If you're ever sharing with someone about becoming a Christian, before they can become a Christian, they have to understand that the law has been broken and that sin has been happened. And there has to be a repentance before you can receive God's grace. Chuck talks about that all the time, you know, on the street. Every, nobody, wants to, nobody wants to hear anything about the law. But unless a conversion, and, and Chuck, you talk to Chuck, he'll tell you, a conversion's not real until somebody understands that the law has been broken. Christ paid for that breaking of the law. And that's how we receive grace. It's grace. Grace, is, grace and law have to go together. And, and as a result, we have to follow the Bible. The whole Bible. We have to believe it. We have to follow it. We, we don't, we don't, we, Christianity is not a buffet. 
You know, you go to a buffet and you say, I like this and I don't like that. I like the, 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 this fried thing and I don't like the vegetables. And I like this, you know, so, you know, you know what I mean? And I like the, a lot of the people, it's true, a lot of people think of Christianity as a buffet now. Oh, I like this, but I don't like that. You know, Thomas Jefferson Bible, we were talking about that the other day. Thomas, he went through and he cut out the parts that he liked and the parts that he didn't like. He cut out the parts that he thought Jesus really said and the parts that he didn't say. And he shredded the Bible that's still on display at the Smithsonian. But a lot of Christians, a lot of people who claim to be Christians, that's with a K, uh, they, they, they think of Christianity, people in our culture today think of, of the Bible as a buffet. I can take what I want and don't, don't take what I don't want. But it's not that way. And it's amazing to hear how people explain away the Bible because something in their life they don't want to give in to the God's law. They don't want to repent of something. So they do amazing hermeneutical flips trying to explain well the bible doesn't really mean what it says it means something else it's incredible the things that i've heard to my face i mean it's hard not to laugh because it's but because it's the bible we we don't have a choice we have to follow it and we never not tell other people it's okay to break it either the bible is very clear in what it says then then in verse 20 we get the shock They get the shock of their lives, these religious leaders. He says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is shocking. He shocks the religious establishment and the people and everybody else too because it's shocking because they, the Pharisees and the scribes, the actual word for the teachers or scribes, they were considered the top of the spiritual food chain. They were the very top. The teachers of the law, also known as scribes in some of your Bible versions, they copied and interpreted the the scriptures for everybody. And they were the doctors of divinity. They were the seminary professors, you know. They were the the PhDs of religion. And, and, And the Pharisees, closely connected with the scribes. The Pharisees was a sect of, of religious people. Think of like monks, but they got married. They were like, kind of like monks. They were just these really committed to, to the law and, and to the, the word. And it was like a club. that, And they followed the law very, very closely. And then they thought, well, God didn't do such a good job. He left a few things out, so they added to it. They just kept piling on top, piling on top. And they piled all these traditions on top of the law. So pretty soon you couldn't even really figure out what God's law said anymore because all these human traditions... That were considered equal to God's law were piled on top. Does that sound like anything you maybe grew up with? Some of you, you know, all right. And uh, as and as a result, Jesus comes along, and these people were considered the top. If any, there was a saying: if only two people were going to go to heaven, a Jewish saying: if only two people were going to get into heaven, God was only going to let two in. He would let in a Pharisee and a, a scribe. That's how highly they were rated. And Jesus, uh, uh-uh, uh, you're not going. Shocking. Shocking! He comes along and says they're not going to heaven. Now let me ask you: Is that politically correct? <laughs> you know, be careful, guys. As Christians, even Christians are infected with this. We got to be politically correct. Don't judge. Don't say. Don't say anybody. You can't say someone's not really Christian or their their cult or their whatever isn't really Christian. Listen, the Bible says don't judge. The heart, because we can't judge the heart. We can't judge motives. We can't. And we, if, we catch your, if we catch ourselves judging motives, that's very bad. But we're going to see in Matthew 7 that Jesus said, judge fruit. Judge the fruit. 
And that's what we're called to judge. We have to judge fruit. And we're going to spend a lot of time on that when we get to Matthew chapter 7. All right? Where he says, you know, the, uh, he says we, we're, to, we're to judge. Now, the, the reason I say this isn't politically correct because the question someone says is because these guys ran the country. They ran the church, the temple. They ran the, relig- the Jewish religion of that day. And they ran the government because Rome ran it overall. But, but the Sanhedrin was made up of these Pharisees and scribes. And they ran it. Okay? But, in, in, but, G, but Jesus constantly did discern. He constantly said people weren't going to heaven. We'll see in Matthew 7, he said, don't judge. But then later in Matthew 7, Matthew 7, 14, 15, he says we're to, not to judge the, the, the heart, but we're to judge the fruit. Not the words, but the fruit. That's what we're called to do. The Bible teaches us to be discerning. To be discerning. That's, that's what he, 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 and this is what comes out here. He teaches us to be discerning. How does a TV evangelist... I'll apply this to a present day. Okay, religious leaders, TV evangelists, guy on TV, these are the big names, right? How, what is their teaching really? Not what they say, but what is really behind them? What is their life like? That's their fruit. Not what they're saying up in front of the microphone on TV. What's the fruit of their life? How does a, what is a politician... Look at politicians. How do they vote? Not what do they say, but how do they vote? Does it go along with, with what they claim? And I'm talking about Christian politicians. Does it go along? Because now it's an election year. I'm, I'm going to make a prediction on this election year. Everybody's going to be Christian. On both sides. Everybody's going to claim, I'm a Christian. They're all going to say the same thing. On both sides. I'm going to pick on both sides, okay? And... With, with this, now understand something. It's okay if a politician is not a Christian. That's okay. Uh, it, we, it, it's okay if someone's running and becomes a president and they're not a Christian. There's no, it's not a problem. You know, I mean, preferably we want someone who believes in God and follows God. It's, it's a good thing. But there's some very good politicians that aren't Christians. And they're good leaders, and, and we pray for them just like Paul prayed for the, you know, the emperor. You know, we pray for them, and that's okay. But here's the problem. If a politician claims to be a Christian, and, and, and then it's not okay if they don't live it. See the difference? If a politician comes out and says, and both sides, you're going to hear it from, I guarantee every one of them. They, and they're going to say, I'm a Christian. We have to discern, because it's not okay if they're not, if they're not really living it. And the church is called to discern. We have to look at their beliefs, their true beliefs. We have to go back and see, and, and I'm, I'm not going to say any names, but let's say we go back and we find out that they're part of a cult, right? Well, if they're, cla- now, that, once again, it's not a problem if they're part of a cult. I mean, it's a problem eternally, but it's not a problem if they want to be a politician. But if they claim that even though I'm part of this cult, I'm a, a Christian, that is a problem. And if we investigate their cult and find out that it's anti-Christian and has nothing to do through Christianity, that's a problem. We're called to judge fruit. Or if they go into a church for many, many years and, and that church is not Christian. If you study it and find out what their church really is about and it's not Christian, that's the problem as Christians. Or if we look at their, if we look, forget, we look at somebody's life in ministry, we find out their life doesn't match. Or if, if anybody in our community who says, I'm a Christian, and we, and we find out that the life doesn't match, it doesn't match up, we're called to judge the fruit. And I'm using some easy examples because, you know, the whole election and the debates and all that going on, it's, it's very interesting. But, 
But Jesus, listen, Jesus called people out spiritually, constantly. He said, your fruit does not match faith in God. John the Baptist got his head cut off for doing it, right? The prophets all along, that they, they spoke about the truth. And, 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 and more than anything, who did Jesus attack? The religious leaders, who also ran the government. But he attacked these religious leaders, and, and he called them false teachers. And he said, guess what? You're going to hell. Would Jesus really say something that mean? Luke 6, let's see if I can remember right offhand here. Luke 6, 36. I don't think it's on there. He says, you snakes. I'm going to just make sure I have the right reference. Luke 6. Uh, oh, I lost it. You snakes, you brood of vipers. It's in Luke. Where Jesus says, you snakes, you brood of vipers. How will you escape being condemned to hell? Talking to the Pharisees. Just be careful of political correctness. Now, I'm not saying we should go around telling people they're going to hell. That's not what I'm saying. But the point is we're called to discern. We're called to discern whether they're our next-door neighbor or whether they're, you know, in, in government in some way. And, and it's not to be mean, but we have to be discerning of the fruit. It's very, very important. So, anyway, that's a little aside. Uh, Jesus shocks these guys. It's shocking. Think of if you're Roman Catholic and someone says, the Pope's going to hell. That would shock a Roman Catholic, right? Closer to home, what if someone got up and said, Billy Graham is going to hell? (laughs) How could you say that? That's what Jesus did here. What he said was just as shocking as that. It was unbelievable what he said. But he says, unless you are better than, more righteous than... Think of, what if he said, you're, think of this, you, you have to be better than Mother Teresa. That would shock a lot of people, right? Or, or think of people outside the church, you have to be better than Oprah. Yeah? <laughs> yeah, because they, they actually did a survey. Who's going to go to heaven? The number one person in our culture was Oprah. Everybody thinks she's going to heaven, right? She was the highest score in our, in our culture, right? I, I I'm not going to get into that. But my only point is, that would shock people, right? You're saying Oprah's not going to heaven. But that's, I'm just trying to give you a picture of what Jesus said was shocking to people. How could Jesus say this? These guys filed the letter to the law. But how did they follow the law? That was the problem. How did they follow it? They just followed it externally. Look at Matthew 23. Just go up a couple chapters here. They just followed it externally. Externally, they followed it with outward appearance. Don't I don't I never killed anybody. You ever hear that on the street, Chuck? <laughs> I never killed anybody. Uh, I, I, we didn't steal. They didn't kill. They didn't commit adultery. They kept it, but they totally ignored the heart and the mind. And to God, thoughts are just as important. Wait till we get the rest of Matthew 5 here. Thoughts are just as important. That's what leads to sin, right? They're just as important to God. God doesn't just care about actions. He cares about the heart and the mind. In fact, in Matthew 23, 25 to 28, he says this to them. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Not politically correct, is he? You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and indulgence. 
Blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. And think about who he's talking to. These are the religious hotshots of the country. It's staggering what he says. And what some apostles said after him, and and they got stoned for it. Think of Stephen, right? He says, you hypocrites, you are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. You're rotten inside. You're like a rotting body inside. Wow. Why, why do you think they killed him? They, they kept the ceremonial law, but they ignored God's moral law. Matthew 23, verse 23. Back up a little bit. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, cumin, but you have neglected the most important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. They, they kept the ceremony, but they ignored the moral law. And the reason they kept the law, and this is really convicting to us, the reason they kept the law was really because of self-interest. It wasn't for God's glory. They did it for their self-interest. Matthew 23, back to verse 5, all the way back to verse 5 there. Everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the places of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogue. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces and have every, uh, men call them rabbi. Everything they did was, was for their own glory. It wasn't for God's glory. Why, and not just how they followed it, but why did they really follow it? They really followed it because they thought that their good works saved them. They thought that their good works saved them, and they missed the whole point. Which is why Paul said in Romans 3.20, he says, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law, but rather through the law we become conscious of sin. No one will be declared righteous by following the law. It's impossible. Sin, the law just shows us our sin. It doesn't save us. It shows us our need of faith and grace. It doesn't save us. And they had it backward. They thought that they were, they were good enough to get into heaven by, by being good. They thought someday they're going to get there and say, God, see, I followed the law. Let me in. And that's a silly concept. I mean, nobody believes that today, do they? <laughs> nobody believes that God's going to just let everybody in just because they try to be good. Nothing new, is it? How do we get right with God and receive eternal life now and forever? It's not by being good. It's not by following the law. It's through the righteousness of Christ, which we only get through faith. We receive Christ's righteousness through faith. Romans 3, I just did Romans 3.20, but in Romans 3.21, it says this. I'm going to turn to it just in case I start to forget it. But in Romans 3, it says, but now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. They were never meant to save. They were testifying to the righteousness that comes from God. And then it says this, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ 
To all who believe, there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified freely through his grace. Through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement. I'm going to have to look it up. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. Powerful. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sin committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Are we seeing a little repeat here? Faith in Jesus. Faith in his blood. Sacrifice of atonement. Are you trusting in your own goodness this morning? Are you here today and you're checking out this whole Jesus thing, and, and, but you realize today you're trusting in your own goodness? Or have you put your faith in the righteousness of Jesus Christ? Are you trusting what his perfect life and his death on that cross and his resurrection power, coming back from the dead and promising to give us that same resurrection power to live righteousness? Are we trusting in Christ's righteousness or our own? In Christians, those who have already put our faith in Christ, how about our lives? Are we living righteous lives through Jesus Christ? Are we living that daily, that righteous life through Jesus Christ? How do we do it? How are we saved? Through faith. How do we live? Through faith. God, I can't do this. I couldn't get to heaven on my own, and I can't live the the way you called us to live on my own. I need faith. Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. Once we put our faith, the day that you say, God, I believe Jesus died for my sin, I put my faith in him, I... Trust in him. I give my life to him. At that moment, you are crucified with Jesus Christ. Your old self is nailed to the cross. Palm Sunday, we're going to have another nailing to the cross. It's going to be awesome. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live the life I live in the body. Uh, I'm sorry, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith. And the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith. We're saved by faith, and we live by faith. And don't be fooled by people's outward image. Don't be fooled by outward image. You know why? Because God's not. Ouch. Don't deceive. We, we shouldn't deceive ourselves on this on this very important matter because listen if we put our faith in Jesus Christ think about this if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ the holy spirit is living inside of us we're follow, trying to follow his word we're going to see a radical life change we're going to see a radical life change if that happens do we really keep god's law are we holy inside and outside not just how we look to other people what they think about us our image But what are we really like? And we've been talking about the Pharisees being shocked, but it wasn't just meant to shock them. It was meant to shock everybody. 
into understanding something. It's meant to shock us into understanding something. That we are saved by faith. And if we're saved by faith, there should be a radical change. There should be, talking about shocking, there should be a shock. Growing up, we had these fences all around the pasture. They're called electric fences. And we learned pretty young what that meant. And it, it was unbelievable. You would think after getting shocked a few times, you'd be careful. But it, I, it just, I still remember. One time, going, going to get out of the pasture, I was going to get under the fence. And I don't know why, I just grabbed that fence. And I still remember being stuck to that electric fence. And it just kept sh- shaking me, shaking me, shaking me. Shaking me. Because every time the current went through, it would shake you. Because the current, you know, it's... Dun, dun, dun. There's a pause, right? And I just remember, I could not let go. And my brothers and sisters, whoever was with me at the time, I don't remember who was with me, but they, they knew something was going through me. It was electricity. And I've seen kids shocked on electric fences a lot of different interesting ways. Some ways I can only tell you on youth group stories. But, but, uh, but I've seen some pretty amazing shocking experiences with an electric fence. But you knew. And the same thing with the Holy Spirit. When the, when the Holy Spirit is moving through us, it's obvious to the people who know it's the best. But the problem is a lot of us, we become Christians and we try to dodge the Holy Spirit's power. You know, we, try to, we try to dodge it, right? We, try to, you know, we don't want it to hit us too hard, right? We had this other electric fence that hung. That, uh, we, it was, uh, we, had to, we wanted to be able to drive the tractor into the barnyard with the, the bucket and feed the cows and do all this stuff. So we had to have a way to get in without getting off the tractor and opening it up and closing it, opening the fence and closing it. So my dad bought this special fence that had like, was on like a, a swing. It was a swinging electric fence. And it was like these two poles that kind of came together. And as you drove through it, it kind of give and open up. And as you, after you went through it, it swing back again. And hanging off, there's these strands, these long strands that went down to the ground. Some of you have probably seen this before. And, and they, they, they were electric. And, and that kept the cows. They would say, I'm going to get out of here. And boof, you know, they jump back. They get a shock. And I developed this game with these, this fence because I knew about the, 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 jolt, the volt, you know, the electric, what do I call it, the current going through would be zoom, zoom, zoom. So we got this idea. We came up with this game. You know, most kids play basketball in their you know, driveways. But farm kids don't have that. So we come up with new games. And we have this game of jumping through the fence. And if you did it fast enough, and you hit it at the right time, you didn't get a shock. Because it, you know, it was boom, boom, boom. So it's kind of like gambling, you know, roulette. You dive through. And I was really good at this. I could dive through this fence. I, I probably did it 50 times. I remember we, I got all my friends would gather around. We'd have all our friends over. Go, oh, give it a try. Ah! You know, you know, getting, cry, you know getting hit. But I, I, was, I would just get this running start. I'd shoot through that. And I never got shocked. And I started to think, well, I could get away with that. And I'll never forget, about 50 times, seriously, about 50 times I made it through it. I'll never forget the one time I didn't make it through. I thought somebody, like, smashed me over the head or something. You know, I was like, bam, you know, hit my shoulder. I was on the ground and, and trying to crawl through really quick. You know, and uh, that's the last time I did it. That wasn't fun anymore. But, but a lot of Christians, or those who claim to be Christians, are doing the same thing. We're trying to dodge, right? 
We're trying to, we're trying to, to, to I call it dive through Christianity. Drive through, dive through Christianity. Trying to, try to, you know, live the Christian life, but try to miss the Holy Spirit's power and, and not have to live it. And, 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 and we, too many of us are diving through Christianity. Or we're saved, but we, 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 but we hope that the electric current misses us. We hope the Holy Spirit, we're dodging God. You ever live like that? Dodging God? You know, there's something in our life that's not right. Maybe a lot of things, but we're just dodging God. Trying to, trying to live our own life. And all of a sudden, wham, he hits us. He really hits us. He breaks us and we surrender. But when we're living like that, we're missing the whole point of the Christian, Christian life. And I really wanted to show this video one more time because I think it just catches the whole point. Why I hate religion but love Jesus it's not, once again, it's on the podcast. Karen's putting it on the podcast for both weeks here. But I want to show it again because I just think this really catches something. And I know a lot of you, number weren't here last week. Let's watch this and then I'll close with prayer. Let's pray. How is God speaking to us this morning? Maybe you're here today and... You came in thinking you were good enough or trying to be good enough to get right with God. But now you realize that's impossible. There's, there's nothing you can do. You can just accept something that's been done by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. Right where you're sitting and the Holy Spirit's moving in your heart. Pray the prayer of faith. Say, God, I believe I've broken your holy law. I deserve punishment. I ask for forgiveness. I repent of that, of my sin, and I ask for forgiveness through your son, Jesus Christ. I believe he died for me. I put my faith in Jesus. I give my life to him. If you've prayed that prayer this morning, the Holy Spirit has come inside of you immediately, fully, and made you a child of God through Jesus Christ, his son. And you didn't just join a religion, but you started a relationship with God as your father. And you can talk to him anytime. And he's going to help you and encourage you and convict you and change you in ways that you never thought imaginable. I want to encourage you to let somebody know, maybe someone you came with, maybe a friend here, let me know, fill out the card, email, tell me on the way out, call. Let somebody know so that we can be excited for you and encourage you and help you in your new faith. And we will be excited, believe me. For those of us who have already put our faith in Christ, how is the Holy Spirit speaking to us this morning? Is the Holy Spirit's power flowing through us in a powerful way so that people can see the difference, and more importantly, that God can see what's in our hearts and minds. Or maybe we've been dodging God and trying to keep out of his way. Maybe even avoiding him because of the 
grieving that we've done to his spirit in our life. And nobody even knows it because outside we look great. But inside we know that we're miserable because we haven't surrendered what needs to be surrendered. So that we can have real joy and real peace and live the awesome life that God wants us to live. That he's created us to live. Because we're not impacting the people that God has called us to impact with the love of Jesus Christ. How is the Holy Spirit speaking to us? Let's just take a few moments of doing business with God. And once again, if you ever need someone to talk to, I'm here and everybody's here. We're all here for each other. Let's just take a few moments of of quiet prayer and then the worship team will finish up.